Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Brexit for a change and how ready Britain and Brussels are for the next round of negotiations. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Alex Barker, our Brussels bureau chief, Brexit editor Daniel Dombey, and Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government. Thank you all for joining. So it's been another big week for Brexit. The UK government has published the first crucial pieces of legislation that will make leaving the EU a reality. Theresa May's government has also conceded that Britain will have to pay the so-called divorce bill for leaving the bloc, which means that the talks won't quite collapse straight away. But there are still many doubts about whether Mrs May's government has the authority and the capacity to actually make Brexit happen. So, George Parker, let's begin with the very exciting Great Repeal Bill, which was then known as the Repeal Bill, which is now known as the European Union Withdrawal Bill. So that came out this week. Why is it significant? Well, Theresa May said it was the biggest moment so far in the Brexit story because it's, of course, the bill which will end the application of the European Communities Act in the UK, which gives supremacy to European Union law and will basically be a huge copy and paste job where we're taking European law and placing it onto the British statute book. The objective being that no one will notice a legal difference on the day we actually leave the European Union. So that's the technical bit of it. Political significance, of course, it's the first of eight very big pieces of Brexit legislation which are coming down the track. The House of Commons will start to debate these in the autumn. And there is a huge amount of political difficulty lying ahead for Theresa May, not just with the repeal bill, which, of course, is subject to amendment from the Labour Party and other people, but also the other bills coming down the line. So it's the start of what will be months of protracted parliamentary guerrilla warfare, which I predict will sap her authority on a weekly basis. So, Jill Rutter, it's your day-to-day job to dig into this sort of thing and tell us what is the bill actually like? Would you describe it as a good bill, a substantive one, or one that's a little bit flimsy? I think what the bill really shows, and I don't think this is a surprise to anyone, is that this is government taking a whole bunch of powers but they don't really know quite yet to do what. So basically, there is one substantive clause, as George said, that's clause one, which repeals the European Communities Act. But we don't yet really know what we're putting in place because a lot of that depends on the outcome of the negotiations. So we have all this stuff, cutting and pasting things that we can directly transfer into UK law. But a big sort of battlegrounds here are partly where do the powers go? So big rounds shaping up with devolved administrations, but also as ministers want to take powers to make loads of decisions through delegated legislation. And they're choosing either affirmative resolutions, that means resolutions of both houses, but no scope for amendment, or negative resolutions where it's up to somebody to say we don't like this and then government can decide whether or not there's a debate. And I think that's another big round is shaping up over how do we transfer all this legislation over and how do we give effect to the final deal. But if you're reading the text of the bill, it is incredibly hard going to work out what on earth this does. This really is a parliamentary council field day. It is not for a normal reader. There's a bit more help in the explanatory memorandum, but explanatory notes just don't go very much further than the white paper that the government put out back in March. 
I guess the problem for the government is they've got to get a balance between having a piece of legislation that can do this big task in time. Because if you take the so-called Henry VIII powers to get everybody very wound up at the moment, that's there because there's no way you could debate every single bit of law from the past 40 years on the floor of the House of Commons. So it's trying to get a balance between something that's practical and something that's achievable in the short time frame because we've got sort of a year and a half almost before we leave the EU. Yeah, that's right. And one of the most interesting things, government have taken power to make urgent measures that last for a month with virtually no parliamentary process at all around them, a sort of essay crisis legislation. But when David Davis released his white paper back in March, he made some noises about a partnership with Parliament discussing how best you could balance the needs of getting this legislation onto the statute book. And everybody realises that actually, since the default is we leave the EU at 11 o'clock on March 29th, 2019, you've got to guaranteed legal certainty. That's the default. So everybody says we've got to get this there. But I think the really interesting question is, does the government have discussions with Parliament about how best to do this? Or do they almost revert to the mindset that they could have done if they got the big mandate and big landslide majority they were seeking in the election of just trying to whip this thing through with minimal parliamentary involvement? And as we saw before the election, the government's strong preference is to minimise the role of Parliament at all stages. Will that work? Are they going to do something different? I think that's one of the big questions for the next couple of months. And as you were saying, George, this is going to be a huge day-to-day challenge for Theresa May because her relaunch, if we want to call it that, I'm not even going to refer to that this week because I think it would be giving uh, too much credit to the word relaunch <laughs> based on what we saw from her this week. But it's all trying to reach out and be consensual and speak to Parliament, speak to MPs. But... MPs don't seem particularly receptive to that and we've heard a lot of very angry noises and people already looking to pull apart this bill, particularly from the Labour side who seem to have got their act together in a way they haven't before and have got some quite clear ways they want to modify this bill but then you end up with a bill that won't get passed and as Jill said you've got this very dangerous proposition of us leaving the EU without the framework in place. Yeah, the Labour Party is being a lot more assertive on Europe than they were before the election when if you remember with the Article 50 bill in the end they hauled up the white flag and it all went through and Theresa May was in charge of all she surveyed, which, of course, she threw up in the air with the election and the cards fell the wrong way for her. But you're right, since the election, the Labour Party seems to have got their act together. Keir Starmer has got a grip of the brief. He's put down six conditions that Labour wants to see met before they will back the repeal bill, one of which relates to the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is a totemic issue for many Tory MPs. They see this as evidence of Brussels' mission creep, that it has its own Charter of Fundamental Rights. The Conservative government doesn't want to import that into the British statute book. Labour says it must be. I think that's a sort of totemic argument, but nevertheless an important one. And there are a whole range of other issues they're attaching to this. There's the Henry VIII powers, which they're worried about, guarantees on workers' rights after Brexit and so forth. So you can see the Labour Party starting to assert itself in this debate. Of course, they're supported by a range of other parties, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats. But it'll be a key role in this parliament, I think, played by backbenchers, because the objective of the Labour Party here is to draw over half a dozen, a dozen Conservative rebels to support them. And they won't do that if amendments are put down by Jeremy Corbyn. They'll do it if it's seen as a backbench initiative. And that's why a new all-party parliamentary group set up by Chukra Muna and Anna Subri, I think, will play an important role in that. The question is, where can you tempt people across on these things? I'm not sure how many of the Conservatives would be prepared to cross the division lobby of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. 
I think you do get some constitutionalists who will be much more worried about the Henry VIII powers. And of course, you know, we're just talking about the commons of huge big battlegrounds in the Lords where the Conservatives never had a majority anyway. And you can't timetable anything and hugely more complicated. And this is just the sort of thing where the House of Lords really likes to get stuck in. It's given government huge amounts of grief before over Henry VIII powers. It lost them when it tried to do a big public bodies reform back in 2010. So that's hugely nightmare territory. So I think the really interesting thing is can the government get ahead of the game at all and try to do things you'd normally say that that's a really good job for your business managers to start creating some of those mechanisms can the government concede stuff for example on some of the measures of scrutiny this issue as well on we might be transferring these things over into uk law but when the commission was there they could enforce some of those rights nobody's going to do those government regards that as technical changes just deleting loads of references to european authorities but that's i think shaping up for quite a big row with quite a lot of non-government organizations as well who see that as leaving a big governance gap and basically the uk government free to do what it likes and to come back to something you said earlier jill about the devolved administrations here this is or to the Sewell Convention, which is that any laws passed in Westminster that will affect the powers of the devolved institutions have to have a motion passed by those institutions. And we've looks as if Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, Carwin Jones in Wales are going to gang up and stop essentially the repeal unless it's changed in a way they want to see it. If we found ourselves in a situation where Parliament does pass this repeal bill and the devolved administrations didn't, what would happen? This is sort of constitutional uncharted territory and George may have a better view. The Sewell Convention isn't the law, it's a convention. And so this is the first time it will be tested. The view of the court seemed to be that the devolves couldn't hold this up. That was the view they took in the Miller case. So there'd be loads of constitutionalists That was triggering arguing. Article 50. That was on triggering Article 50. So the interesting thing is if the devolves don't do their part of amending devolved legislation. They'll be the very odd position where UK law has changed, but devolved law hasn't changed. That would be slightly weird. The interesting question is, we've had lots of language as well, talking about partnership with Parliament. The other bit of language we got when we uh, had the Great Repeal Bill White Paper was the idea of having productive discussion, intensive discussions, I think it said, with the devolved administrations, both about how the powers transfer would work, what frameworks we would do. We know that the devolves wrote to David Davis straight after the election. We had a letter from there to devolved ministers in Scotland and Wales saying, you know, you promised all this consultation has not happened. We haven't seen a draft of the bill. We're not happy. This needs a complete reset come on and do something. Really interesting to see whether the government does anything to put the relationships with the devolves on a bit more of a productive basis. Because actually, I think the default is they can't stop the repeal bill. It won't work like that. It will go through. But there will be huge amounts of complaints about the whole thing and make it very difficult. The SNP are never going to be fans of this anyways. So yeah. it probably won't change the arithmetic massively, but it'll be very interesting to see how the government plays that as well. And George, where is Theresa May's position generally at the moment? It seems she's a little bit stronger than she probably was a couple of weeks ago. And it looks as if she's going to make it through to the summer recess now, which means we're through into the autumn. How do you see the Prime Minister's position? Well, Seb, you and I were at the Spectator summer party this week and it was the talk, wasn't it, in the garden there? How long is she going to last? And you're right, she gets through to the summer recess. And in fact, her position, I think, stabilised a bit in the last couple of weeks. But interestingly, as her position stabilises and people start to talk about the possibility of her carrying on all the way through to Brexit in March 2019, there are people waiting in the wings who are a bit impatient to get their hands on the Tory crown before that time. I'm thinking here, obviously, of David Davis, the Brexit secretary, who's a man in a bit of a hurry, age 68. In 2005, he was overtaken by a younger man in the leadership contest, David Cameron. So he doesn't want that to happen again. So there's a lot of manoeuvring going on. And I think October is a dangerous time for Theresa May. People 
will go away for the summer holidays. Downing Street looks to the long summer recess or talk about in reverential terms this moment where the party would go away and have a deep breath and come back in a more sober frame of mind. But I think in September, leading through to the October party conference, there'll be a lot more manoeuvring. And the obvious thing for the Tory party to do is to stick with Theresa May. She's plumb centre of whether you have to be in the party to deliver Brexit. Removing her will cause a bitter power struggle, which will divide the party on European lines. There'll probably have to be another election. Labour could be in office by the end of the year. So they know they shouldn't do it. But that's not to say in these current febrile times that they won't. And it's going to be a fascinating coming back after the summer holidays. It was also an interesting thing I've picked up from MPs as well, is that the stronger Theresa May get in the short term, the increased likelihood they think they might try and get rid of her in the short term because they feel, OK, well, the situation's not as febrile or as dangerous as it was. So actually, maybe we should move now against her, which defies logic a bit. But that seems to be what people, yeah, people are thinking. Number, people in number 10 talk about that, don't they? That in the immediate aftermath of the election, it was so it was so, mad. so dangerous and they were so weak that everyone felt obliged to shut up but actually over the last couple of weeks as she's put in some stronger performances in the house of commons and looked a bit more stable you can see people starting to think we've got permission now to start rocking the boat a bit and to see what happens because if you're for example david davis you're worried about waiting till 2019 you probably think she's on the edge you know a little bit of a push and she could go and then the crown will fall into my hands there are some people who talk about a coronation of david davis that will not happen i predict i got, I, I would agree with there, you on there that will as well, not be totally. a coronation i was speaking to one minister who said as long as andrea ledsom's alive there will not be a coronation but it's not just andrea ledsom there are a whole load of other people who would contest it there'll be a pro-european candidate as well and the tory party what i found at this party right is that they know they shouldn't do it but people have a morbid fascination during the dog days of July of looking into the abyss, don't they? It was, as David Liddington, the uh, Justice Secretary, said, it's too much hot sun for Secco. Every summer does that. And finally, just to look at something entirely different, the IFG's done a lot of research and investigation into the capacity in Westminster and Whitehall for Brexit and dealing with that. It's been a year this week since Theresa May became Prime Minister and we're about to get really deep into the Brexit talks from next week. How would you rate the preparedness of the civil service and the British government for what lies ahead? I think at one level you could say done surprisingly well to create these new departments, get some of the mechanisms in shape, staff them up, but there's still loads more to do. I mean, we heard a few weeks ago that they were creating a policy reserve of 750 people to deploy into Brexit-related positions. I was talking at something earlier in the week, and one of the big frustrations of these people from business was that they'd speak one week to someone in government, and then two days later they get a message saying, by the way, I've just been promoted to another job. So they were constantly dealing with churn, which is one of the things that besets government anyway. But I think with all this moving past going. I think that's really quite difficult. People say different departments are getting up to speed at different rates. So I think the picture isn't uniform across the piece of who is ready, who isn't, etc, etc, etc. So I think that's going to be tested as we come up through the next months. I think one of the really interesting things, and we're doing some work on this now, and this relates to the NAO report that came out, namely Morse's famous chocolate orange and cricket ball, is that there's some really big implementation issues. You know, we talk about the sort of negotiations of who's going there. We're talking about the legislation. That's clearly a massive task, tying up government lawyers and policy expertise. But actually, just getting some of the things to happen on the ground is a pretty massive task too. You know, so the NAO was looking at this big customs IT system. So that's all the sort of civil service thing. But there's a thing that the civil service can't do and that basically ministers have to do. And I think it goes to some of the things George was saying about who's in charge. You know, 
can the government make the critical decisions it needs to make to actually negotiate and to actually decide? Because at some point you have to not leave all your options open. If you're planning for every option, you can plan for no option. You need to make some critical choices. And is the Prime Minister strong enough to call a halt to some of the discussions we're seeing between people like David Davis, Philip Hammond or whatever, and actually say, well, this is what we're going to do. Or is there a decision-making mechanism? I think that's a critical thing as we move into the next phase. And the choice she has to make will be made in October. There's a European summit on, I think it's about the 20th of October, so two or three weeks after the Tory conference, where she will have to choose on Europe. Coming just off the back of the Tory conference, it's going to be a fascinating month. If things are looking a bit topsy-turvy from a British angle, how is Brexit looking from Brussels? Now the UK has accepted that it does need to pay a divorce bill, does this mean the talks will go ahead a bit more smoothly? Or is everything now being done on the EU's terms instead of Britain's term? And how prepared are both sides for the next round of negotiations? Alex Barker, just to begin this, can you tell us what the general mood is on Brexit from where you are? Well, frankly, it's still early days. I mean, this is really next week, the first time they're sitting down to talk serious content. We've got position papers from both sides, not on all areas, but covering most of it. And this will be the first chance where they kind of sit down almost with tables and say, look, here's where we converge. Here's where we don't agree. And you'll have this reckoning going through the week. And then on Thursday, you'll see press conferences and a public statement by at least Michel Barnier, the EU's negotiator, on where they've uh, got to and how much progress or otherwise they've made. And one of the big worries was that the UK had not put down a position paper on the financial settlement and behind the scenes had been saying, well, legally, we're not on the hook for anything. And Barnier had made a big point of saying these talks will go nowhere unless the UK is willing to accept the principle that it has legal obligations that outlast its membership. And that's what we saw in a written statement yesterday. So the big blow up has probably been averted, but there's a big gap in substance in a lot of these areas. And we'll see that emerge next week, I suspect. So Daniel Donby, on the issue of the money, there's been very different rhetoric from the UK side on this. You've had Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, who said that you can go whistle over that, to which Michel Barnier responded, I don't hear any whistling, just the clock ticking. Whereas on the other hand, you've had Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, who said Britain is a country that pays its commitments, so essentially acknowledging that there will be a bill to pay. And it seems as if the official negotiating position is closer to Philip Hammond than Boris Johnson's, which, as Alex is saying, is a good thing for the talks progressing at this very early stage. Yes, I think this is basically a microcosm of where we are on Brexit. I just don't think it's any surprise at this point that we're seeing a couple of things. First of all, we continue to see a cacophony of voices in the government after the inconclusive election result. What matters most is the official negotiating position. What matters most are the statements from Dexu and the written answers provided to Parliament. But you simply can't ignore the tensions and strains within the Conservative Party, which will also bear on the negotiating position. And that's why, obviously, when you hear resistance from people like Mr. Johnson, that obviously will play into things. The other, however, trend that's going on, I think, is that gradually, maybe the British side is coming to grips with either reality or the Brussels position, or however you want to frame it. We had these first phase of the negotiations. Don't forget the very first day of negotiations last month, where after weeks of protestations that the 
talks had to continue in parallel. Finally, the British gave in on the very beginning of talks and said, yes, of course, they have to go sequentially, as Brussels said. And now, just ahead of the second round, we've seen the Brits accede to that other big principle that the Europeans have set out, that their financial obligations continue after Brexit, that they have to pay basically some sort of exit bill. And Alex, that point you raised about detail is very interesting because as we were talking earlier in the podcast, the great repeal bill was released, which as a parliamentary bill seems to be thought, but there were also some papers that came out about regulation and technical things. And there seems to be a bit of a gap, certainly in terms of the detail and the quality from what's coming from the British government and Brussels. Is that fair? It's a bit easier for the EU side because they're dealing with the status quo and a lot of the issues that the UK have to address in these papers are A, having to set up a new system in a way and B, addressing sensitive political areas like ECJ jurisdiction, like the kind of legal independence you'll have that would probably in Westminster not quite ready to really tackle head on yet. And so you see that glided over in some parts of these papers. But the main message you see in them is try to highlight that a cliff edge scenario is bad for both sides and that the EU similarly has an interest in trying to move to this discussion about a transition sooner rather than later. And that's in areas like whether the European Investment Bank has a license to operate and manage its loan book in the UK, the kind of nuclear liabilities you see, the issue of what would happen to pending cases if there was a sudden cutoff. They're slowly pushing at little weak spots in the EU's own position to say, look, let's be reasonable. We've got to talk about the transition and the future. Dan, essentially nothing has changed fundamentally in the UK's negotiating position. Obviously, the general election result led to some kind of discussion. Are we going to go for a softer break? Is it going to be less of a clean break? Is there going to be a longer transition? But we still know very little about this transition. When might we hear more about that? But essentially, I think from the two spectrums of opinion within the government, from Philip Hammond on the softer side to Liam Fox on the other side, they all acknowledge the ultimate place is a clean break, no long-term membership of the single market and no long-term membership of the customs union. It's just about how we get there. Well, that's right. But bear in mind that sometimes transitions can last an awful long time, even if they have initially a date certain. We still don't know exactly what that transition looks like, but we do know a couple of things. First of all, Don't forget these negotiations are horrendously complicated. There's four parts to them. There's the divorce talks, which is what's going on at the moment. If the Commission deems and the EU deems that those have made sufficient progress by, let's say, October, they'll then go on to the next phase. That involves talks on a future relationship and talks on transition. And then finally, at some point, probably after 2019 when we leave, there'll be a long-term free trade agreement. So it's a very complex process. But in all of that, with all of the complexity of that, there is one thing which is perhaps, in theory, less bespoke, less innovative, which is a transition, because with so little time and with so much going on, a transition will have to reach deep into the status quo. So that's why when we talk about transition, it probably is something that looks like the customs union, for example, for goods. For other areas like services, it's more complicated. But the transition debate, with so much unclear The final relationship between the EU and the UK set to be determined after we leave. What really matters in many ways right now is what that transition arrangement is going to be and how many obstacles we're going to be putting in between our market and the European market and our country and European countries.
What's the Commission's view on transition, Alex? Obviously, they've been very clear that the four freedoms are not going to shift. And if the UK wants to remain in the single market, has to abide by those freedoms. And this is obviously politically difficult in Westminster. But from their point of view, are they willing to allow that membership to continue after Brexit Day? It's actually more simple than it seems in terms of the EU's position on transition. It's basically that if you want to remain in the customs union and the single market, basically to extend the status quo in economic terms and Britain leave and give up its membership, you've got to take on everything. You've got to take on the law, the judges, the commission overseeing rules, the acceptance of new rules that come onto the statute book at EU level. It's the whole package. And for them to start picking that apart is virtually impossible in the time constraints they have and the legal constraints they have in setting up something that realistically would be for maybe 2019, 2020, 2021. So really, it's the whole package or alternatively, something that is a much more disruptive exit and where you would fall back, say, onto the customs union. You would have arrangements around that. But as Michel Barnier has been pointing out, a lot of the advantages of the customs union actually come from being a member of the single market as well. It's not as frictionless as as people imagine. And that would be pretty disruptive. But that's the alternative. And there, the UK would have more regulatory independence, but that comes with a price. And those are the two main options. There's not many in between. So essentially what you're saying is that a transition deal is going to just be extending the status quo until we've got the apparatus in place for that final clean break. So it's still essentially, I don't even want to call it a cliff edge, but that is still going to be reached at some point. It's just pushing it further away. Yeah, that is the smooth transition. The more disruptive one with more independence is to fall back on a goods arrangement where you wouldn't raise tariffs against each other. You'd probably agree that you're going to reach a free trade deal with zero tariffs in the future. So you'd keep those at zero, but all the other impediments on services, on the movement of goods, on phytosanitary checks, you know, animals moving across borders, all those kind of things would come into effect at that moment. Finally, Dan, Jeremy Corbyn visited Brussels this week to put forward and have Labour's position on Brexit and and had discussions with Michel Barnier because, of course, there is a possibility we could have another general election and the bookies and the posters suggest there's a chance that he would probably win that if that happens. So his team could replace Theresa May's team before the process is over. If that happens, how disruptive do you think it would be to the Brexit process? I would turn that round, actually. I think that's a more of a UK political question. I think that if there was another election, it would be the result of some kind of cataclysm, whether it was in the Tory party or the Brexit process or the economy, that itself might change the landscape for Brexit talks. We know that Mr Corbyn is a man of contradictions, right? He's a out-and-out Eurosceptic and has been for decades. He voted against, in the 1975 referendum against the EU. He voted against the Maastricht Treaty. He voted against the Lisbon Treaty. That said... The Labour Party has a position which is slightly less hard Brexit than Theresa May's position on things like membership of Euratom and other issues, but remains very much against leaving the single market. And of course, Mr Corbyn recently sacked some shadow ministers for voting to remain in the single market. So he is still someone who is very much in favour of Brexit and probably has been throughout his career. 
And Alex, with regard to that visit, is that anything that will affect or change the process at all from the Commission side of it? There were requests that came in from uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, uh, the Welsh First Minister, Jeremy Corbyn. It had been delayed for some time because, you know, they didn't want to be talking to British politicians before the Article 50 letter and then the election happened. It all kind of piled up. But in terms of how the Commission are thinking through this, it doesn't make that much of a difference, really. They obviously are interested in how Westminster dynamics may affect the ability of the person they're negotiating with to discharge whatever they promise in the negotiating room. But they're not there trying to meddle in British politics by playing Labour off against the government. It's part of the context, but it's not a primary factor in their thinking. And then finally, I've got a slightly open-ended question for both of you, because obviously this process, it's picked apart day by day through the press everywhere. For Alex first and then for Dan, do you think it's going to plan so far? Whose plan? (laughs) I think from the EU side, they're pretty confident at the moment. They are pretty optimistic about the outcome in terms of their main priorities, which is keeping the 27 together, reducing the risks of another member state going the way of Britain, and defining and understanding the principles of what it is to be an EU member in a clearer way, and by dint of that, showing that by not being a member, you lose out. That's their main set of priorities, and they are pretty confident that so far they've managed to keep it along those tracks and with sequencing have maintained pressure on the Brits. They've got a clock running. You know, if anything, I think the biggest danger that they feel is overplaying their hand at this point and pushing it too far because some people in Brussels think the Brits are cornered and however hard they push, it won't matter because at some point they're going to have to capitulate. And Dan? Well, from the British side, sometimes one has to question to what extent there is any kind of realistic plan. Uh, We had an election that we were assured wasn't going to happen. It then failed to produce a majority. And so it's not clear sometimes to what extent there is even medium term planning. Mrs Mays talked about things like reaching a free trade agreement by the time we leave. I think, to be honest, I'm not sure how much, if that was planning, it has survived reality so far. Well, there'll be plenty more to pick on this after the event of next week. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment. Until then, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.